Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Again, it is good to see faces in this room. Uh, it's great to have folks worshiping at home with us as well. Uh, we're going to continue, pick back up our series through the book of Judges this morning. We took a break last week as we kind of gathered back in person for the first time, but we're, we're back in Judges, but I want to start in the book of Romans in the New Testament. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't be conformed to the world, but be instead transformed to Christ by the renewal of your mind. As long as the people of God live out their days in a fallen world, we will face the constant temptation to become more and more like the world around us rather than being transformed into the image of Christ. And, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Sometimes it's because we're trying to reach the world with the love of Christ, but we think that in order to do that, we have to become like the world or we will never gain a hearing. And so we, we take those parts of the faith that are kind of maybe seen as more negative in the world's eyes and we minimize those. So authority or divine judgment or sexual ethics or biblical infallibility, we kind of minimize that and then we amplify the parts that the world uh, happens to agree with at this particular moment in time. You know, love, acceptance, mercy, and so on, liberty. So sometimes it's because we're trying to reach the world, but we mistakenly think that to do that we have to become like them. Sometimes it's because we're trying to fit in with the world. We, we find ourselves being more concerned about what our friends or our boss or our social media followers think about us than what our Lord Jesus thinks. And so we make sure we have to say the right things or, or post the right things or uh, make sure we send up the right virtue signal or support the right cause or cancel the right person lest we be canceled ourselves. But sometimes it's, it's not because we want to be like the world. Um, it's simply because we spend more time listening to the world than to the Word of God. And it's so easy to do. Again, whether it's friends or film or, or music or, or social media or whatever, the voices around us from this world slowly and subtly become a lens through which we read Scripture rather than the other way around, with Scripture giving us a lens to interpret the world. However you get there, however you get there, when the church, when the people of God allow themselves to become conformed to the world rather than being transformed by Christ, when, when we become indistinguishable from the world, such you can't even tell the difference, that not only breaks the heart of God, it's, it erodes our relationship with him and our relationship with each other. And it dilutes our unique witness to the world. What do we actually have to offer if there's no difference between Christ's people 
and those around. But perhaps even more tragic, when we become indistinguishable from the world, it turns God's salvation into a threat rather than a solution. Repentance, redemption, those become a liability that threaten to mess up the status quo when we allow ourselves to be indistinguishable. And that's exactly where ancient Israel finds themselves in the story before us this morning. Uh, We introduced this story a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the birth narrative of Samson in chapter 13. And when we looked at that story, what we saw was the people of God completely resigned to their oppressed situation where they should have been crying out to God for deliverance after 40 years of oppression by the Philistines. Instead, they were silent. Uh, And in fact, what we're going to see in our story here is that the idea of deliverance itself becomes unthinkable or unwelcome to Israel. They have just become uh, resigned to the Philistine control. They're not interested in God's salvation right now. And, and understand, it's not because they simply went underground with their faith and continued to be faithful to Yahweh just amid Philistine occupation, like the way that many uh, persecuted churches might operate today. They were not being faithful to Yahweh. Through the whole book, they've constantly taken the gods of the other nations and made them their own, either adding them to Yahweh or replacing Yahweh with them. So this is not like Uh, trying to just keep their head down and stay worshiping God, they're okay with adding these other gods. They're okay with the Philistines ruling them. Uh, What has happened to Israel at this point in the story is what Dan Block calls the Canaanization of Israel. They have become indistinguishable from the nations around them. And the idea of God actually intervening and changing that is not welcome. They don't want it. But as we saw last week, that does not stop God from saving them anyway. Even if they don't want his salvation, he's still going to act to redeem his people. He will accomplish his salvation even through the most unlikely of circumstances. And here in our story, that unlikely circumstance has a name, Samson. God raises up Samson. And we saw, again, a couple weeks ago, this remarkable birth story and he's the only judge whom we meet before he's even born. Like everybody else just kind of shows up in the moment of need. And he has been groomed, called, cultivated from before birth to be this deliverer. And so we have huge expectations about what Samson's going to be like. Will he finally be the judge who gets it right? Will he finally be the one who brings justice and delivers God's people and defeats death and so on? Well, what we find in our story is that yes, God does deliver his people again, even if they don't want him to. And yes, he does accomplish that deliverance through Samson, but not because Samson is so remarkable. In fact, as one author puts it, he is by far the most flawed character in the book. Uh, He's a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. That's Samson. Uh, And as you follow the story, we find that Samson's plans don't actually go the way that he intends. He, left to himself, he usually ends up losing. 
and gets himself into binds that apart from the Lord showing up, he's not going to get out of. But it's there when all hope seems but lost on earth that God so often shows up to deliver his people, to accomplish his salvation. God will use Samson, not because of Samson, but because he is faithful and merciful and powerful to keep his word. And so what we're going to do this morning is cover actually both chapters 14 and 15. We only read 14 uh, a minute ago, but these two chapters actually hang together in the Samson narrative and, and revolve around the events related to Samson's wife in Timnah. Chapter 14 is marked by secrecy. Chapter 15 by revenge. But both of them, in, in all of it, despite the tragedy and the selfishness, the Lord shows up. He answers from heaven to accomplish his saving purposes. And so chapter 14 begins with Samson uh, deciding it's time to settle down and find a wife. Uh, the problem is that the wife that he has in mind is not someone whom his parents are too thrilled about. Uh, she's a Philistine, specifically from the uncircumcised Philistines, which means the problem is not so much she's from a different nation, but she's from a nation that is outside the covenant with God. They are not worshipers of Yahweh. In fact, her people are the very people currently oppressing God's people Israel, the people Samson is supposed to deliver Israel from. So how's he going to carry out his destiny if he's simply going to become one of the enemies? This doesn't make sense to them. And the reality is Samson is being pretty self-centered. Uh, he does not appear to be thinking about his unique calling to be a deliverer, uh, which has to be a punch in the gut to his parents. I mean, they've spent all of this time trying to raise him according to the angel's instructions as a Nazarite, preparing him for this destiny, this calling, only to have him grow up and throw all of that away and instead to become like one of the others. That, that has to be heartbreaking. And, and the author tips us that, this, that, that it's Samson's selfishness that's happening um, that's causing this desire with this phrase, for she was right in his eyes. Samson sees the woman and she's right in his eyes. And, and in, that phrase is not just on Samson's lips, but on the narrator as well in verse 7. And we're going to see that phrase again in the book of Judges. And it does not have a good connotation when you get to chapter 17 and everyone's doing right in their own eyes. Samson is serving Samson here. But the Lord has a secret. Verse 4, his father and his mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So despite, in fact, through Samson's selfishness, the Lord will begin to awaken his people to the reality of their bondage. He will begin to stir in them this realization that is as buddy-buddy and cozy as they have become with the Philistines, it's not supposed to work this way. They belong to God, not the gods of Philistia. And so God is going to shake up the status quo and wake his people up. As Tim Keller explains, what, what does God do 
when his people are not just accommodating, but becoming assimilated into the world. Well, here he uses the very weaknesses of Samson, his fraternization with the Philistines, his sexual appetite, his vindictiveness and temper to bring about a confrontation between these two nations. The Lord has a secret purpose for Samson's life. And in verses 5 to 9, Samson begins to craft a few secrets of his own. So as he and his parents make their way down to Timnah, where his love interest resides, uh, there's a couple of things that happen on the way. On the first trip down, apparently at some point when Samson is by himself, a young lion comes out of nowhere roaring to attack him. Now, under normal circumstances, this would be the end of the Samson story. Like, no matter how many muscles you've got, you're just not going to survive something like that. But look at what happens in verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So notice who gets the credit for Samson's feat of strength, which is an amazing feat of strength, tearing a lion apart. I don't know how easy or common it is to tear a young goat, <laughs> like how, why that's the standard there, but, but however easy that is, that's what he did to a lion, right? That's a huge feat of strength, but who gets the credit for it? It's not Samson. It's not his strength that's praised. It's the spirit of the Lord who rushed upon him. This is divine intervention. This is God acting from on high to deliver his people. I mean, so often we think of Samson as like this big old beefy bodybuilder, right, who can tear phone books and things like that. And, and I'm sure he could bench a few. But, but apart from God showing up here, he would have been dinner. It was not his strength that accomplished this. This was the Lord when all hope seems but lost on earth. It's there that God often answers from heaven. And that's what he does here. And we're going to see this two more times in the story. This is the pattern. The, the incident with the lion is the pattern or the sign of what's to come. And it's also a secret, which frankly in itself, in itself is amazing. Like it, just so you, if I had torn a lion apart with my bare hands, you all would know about it, okay? I would be telling you about it. I would be posting it on Facebook and wearing the lion's teeth around my neck and all that kind of stuff. So the fact that he keeps this a secret, that's amazing. But he doesn't tell his parents, and, and neither does he tell them what happens on the next trip when he sees the lion's carcass and he discovers that some bees have, have moved in and all of a sudden there's a little honeycomb in there and, and he gets himself a little snack, even shares it with his parents, but he does not tell them where it came from. And these two secrets lead up to a little game that Samson decides to play with the Philistines during the week-long wedding ceremony in Timnah. Samson poses a riddle. Poses a riddle. The stakes in the riddle... Uh, in modern day terms, would be 30 pairs of underwear and 30 new suits. So kind of a strange wager, but uh, there you go. And the riddle that he gives is in verse 14. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong 
came something sweet, which is really cruel. Like, unless you're Samson, there's no way you're going to solve that riddle, right? Um, But he gives them seven days to do it, and three days in, they still can't solve it. So they come up with a secret of their own. They approach Samson's wife and threaten to basically kill her and her father and burn their house down over them unless she can coerce the answer out of Samson. And and she does her level best. She puts on, she uses all of the moves, you don't love me, you hate me, and so on and so forth, which, you know, you can't uh, discredit that because her life is at stake, right, if she doesn't do this. But Samson, he doesn't budge, at least initially. Initially, he tells her, you know, I didn't tell my parents, why would I tell you? But after a while, she wears him down, and as we're going to see next week, Samson just cannot resist revealing secrets to attractive women. And so he tells her what the riddle is, and she tells the people, and on the seventh day, just before the sun goes down, they give him the answer. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? To which Samson replies uh, with an insult to both his friends, companions here, and his wife. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And in case you haven't figured this out, Samson is not exactly a role model for how to treat women. I mean, that should be transparent on the surface, but in case there's any doubt, don't ever say something like that, okay? But Samson loses. He loses his bet. His whole plot to get himself a new wardrobe backfires on him. And now he's got to come up with 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes, which apparently he does not have. And so what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Well, what happens next looks like a reckless and violent killing spree. And it pretty much is. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. So Samson pays his debt to these Philistines by going and killing 30 other Philistines and taking their clothes and giving them to them. It's, it's not exactly what you would expect from a deliverer of, of God's people, right? But, but notice the phrase at the beginning of verse 19. The same phrase we saw earlier in verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. What happened at Ashkelon was not something Samson did in his own strength or even for just his own purposes, Yeah, he'd lost the bet. His plan had failed. But the Lord shows up when all hope seems but lost on earth and answers from heaven, strengthening Samson, which is a strange answer. Like, why why answer it that way? But it's important to remember, um, as we talked about early in the series on Judges, that the Philistines were violent oppressors. They had been taking advantage of God's people for 40 years and giving God's glory that he alone deserved to carved idols instead. And the Israelites had become fine with that relationship. The Lord will not have it. He will not allow his people to be taken advantage of and he will not allow his glory to be given to carved idols. 
and he will not allow his people to remain conformed to the world around them. In delivering his people, he first has to wake them up to help them understand this whole little buddy-buddy relationship you have with the Philistines. This is not going to work. This is not loving to you. It does not give me glory. They are not good lords over you. And so what he needs is a wrecking ball to shake the status quo. And that's exactly what Samson is. And he does a pretty good job. He's pretty effective at shaking things up, right? As the secrecy of chapter 14 now gives way to the revenge of chapter 15. So at the end of chapter 14, uh, Samson goes home angry and his wife is actually given to his best man instead. The father assumes Samson's done, not coming back, and so assumingly to take care of his daughter, he gives her to someone else. But Samson kind of likes the ladies, and so despite the train wreck wedding, he shows up a few months later to claim his bride. And when he finds out that she's been given to someone else, it does not go over well. And so he says in verse 3, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm, which interestingly suggests that he kind of knew what he did in Ashkelon was not okay. Even if God had a rightful claim to judge the Ashkelonite, the people of Ashkelon for their idolatry, Samson, they were innocent with regard to Samson's wager. Like they were his victims. And, and what unfolds in the rest of chapter 15 is just this vicious, ugly cycle of retaliation. Samson burns their crops to get his revenge And so they burn his wife and her father and their house down to get their revenge. So he strikes more of them with a great blow to get his revenge. And so then when they can't find Samson, they attack the people of Judah to get their revenge. And it just keeps going and going and going. But Judah, when they somehow find themselves pulled into this feud, they want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with it. This tribe that had at one point been the tribe, the first tribe to go up to drive out the inhabitants of the land, they're okay with the Philistines being in charge. When they find out why the Philistines had attacked them, they pull together 3,000 men to go try and track down Samson. And, And when they find him, they express some of the most heartbreaking words in this book. Verse 11. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? They have resigned themselves to the fact that God's no longer in charge. The people of Philistia are in charge. They've forgotten the covenant promises of God. They don't recognize God's rule over them. And they don't want God's salvation anymore heartbreaking. Dale Ralph Davis describes it like this. Here is a people who have acquiesced to bondage, who can no longer imagine anything beyond the status quo, who see deliverance as a threat to peace, who look upon Yahweh's enemies as their rightful lords. Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh instantly, but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines? This doesn't make sense. This is heartbreaking. 
But it's not necessarily unexpected, though. I mean, you, you think back to when God sent Moses to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. And at first, they're all excited about that. But the minute Egypt retaliates and makes their labor harder, they go to Moses. The leaders go to Moses and say, stop it. You're making things worse. We don't want to be saved. We figured out how to just keep our head down and keep going. But God wants something better for his covenant people. He wants something better. And he will use the petty vengeance of Samson to accomplish it. Uh, that's what Samson thinks this is about. Verse 11, middle of verse 11, uh, when the, the Judah, people of Judah ask him what's going on, his explanation for the feud, as they did to me, so I have done to them. Like, this is just, you know, they started it, I'm just getting my revenge. It's like the opposite of the golden rule, right? Instead of doing unto others as you wish they would do to you, it's doing unto others what they've done to you. It's not supposed to work that way. But the Lord is rousing his slumbering people. And so when the Judahites pledge to merely bind Samson and hand him over to the Philistines, they're not going to kill him. They're just going to tie him up and, and hand him over. Samson agrees to the deal. He goes with them peacefully. And, and once again, it looks like Samson has lost. Here he finds himself in this cycle of vengeance has backfired and now he's being handed over to the enemy bound with two brand new ropes which nobody can get out of and, and it looks like he's lost but just as when he was attacked by the lion just as when he stood before 30 men in Ashkelon so the Lord answers from heaven again middle of verse 14 then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Same phrase. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Again, you know, he's not taking his Nazarite vow too seriously here. Touching a corpse, a fresh donkey jawbone, or even sticking his hand into the line earlier, that's not something he's supposed to be doing as a Nazarite. That was one of the things that uh, were off limits. But when he picks up a jawbone, he knows how to use it. He uh, strikes down a thousand men, and then he writes a poem about it, right? With the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. Which, uh, to give him credit, uh, it plays better in Hebrew because the word for donkey and heap are homonyms. They sound the same. So a little bit's lost in translation in the poem here. But, but again, when all hope seems but lost on earth, the Lord answers from heaven. That's so often what he does. And, and the concluding part of the story at the end of chapter 15 reminds us in no uncertain terms that God is the one who accomplishes this salvation. As Samson, and Samson acknowledges it in, in kind of a backhanded compliment uh, way. Uh, he's thirsty and complaining. He says, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, verse 18, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So he recognizes God's hand in the salvation, um, but now kind of uh, passive-aggressively accuses God of not caring about him. 
But the Lord, in his mercy, even here, responds with grace and provides for Samson. Like Israel of old, he brings water from the rock. And, and it's essential to, remind, to, to remember that this is God's mercy showing up in this story in terms of using Samson. He was not qualified to be God's deliverer by virtue of his behavior or his character. Uh, God used Samson despite his flaws, not because of his flaws. As Davis puts it, neither Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness is going to prevent Yahweh from accomplishing his design. He can and will use the sinfulness and stupidity of his servants as camouflage for bringing about his secret will. And, and that is so critical to understand. When you think about leadership in general and you, and you look at Samson, just because God uses somebody to accomplish his work doesn't mean he approves of everything that person does, right? Uh, I mean, you can't look at Samson and justify ungodly behavior because, well, Samson did it and, and God used him. Especially when you look at what the New Testament says about qualifications for leadership among God's people. You look at the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You put it like this. Womanizing bullies like Samson are no excuse for tolerating womanizing bullies in the church or in any other sphere. Uh, this is not acceptable uh, behavior or character. God might use sinful people to accomplish his purposes, but that doesn't justify or excuse their sin. As Tim Keller explains in this story, we see everyone acting out of their own ungodly character, Samson and the Philistines. They're all responsible for what they do. But we also see God using it all to ensure that the two nations are alienated so that God's people will not totally lose their distinctiveness. And again, that's what was at stake for Israel. They had lost their distinctiveness. They had become so like the nations around them that to look at them, you could no longer tell the difference between God's people and the world. And so when it looked like all hope was lost, that Israel's just going to fade into the nations and disappear from, from human history, God acted from heaven to deliver his people and accomplish his will. And, and what God has done for Israel in this story, he has done for all nations in Christ. You know, it's interesting, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the birth story of Samson, we noted that there were some interesting similarities between the birth story of Christ, these two miraculous births that set such high expectations for the people that, that are going to come from them. And with Samson, we're kind of disappointed. We, we had great expectations, and here's a relatively, well, not just relatively, here's a very ungodly person uh, that comes out of that, right? And depending on what you're expecting from the story of Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, you may find yourself somewhat disappointed as well. If what you're looking for is the kind of brawny uh, warrior king who's going to beat up God's enemies and kick Rome out and reclaim the kingdom for Israel, you find yourself pretty disappointed when you read the story of Christ. 
That's not the way he did it. In fact, as his story comes to a climax, he loses. He gets captured. He gets uh, convicted through a sham trial. He's handed over to the Romans for crucifixion. And, and at that moment, you're waiting there. As he's standing there bound, you're, you're just waiting for the moment when his bonds are going to become like flax that's been burned and just melt off his hands, and he's going to pick up a jawbone and, you know, do to Rome what Samson did to the Philistines. But it doesn't happen. He gets killed, crucified, like just another rebel. But when it looked like all hope on earth was lost, God answered from heaven. As Peter preached in Acts 2, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the crucifixion wasn't a mistake, you, the, the people he's t- talking to, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible to be held by them. God answered from heaven to raise his son up in victory. And Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus did not give his life so that we could blend into the world or find our approval from the world, but so that we would shine as lights in the world amid a crooked and depraved generation. So when we find ourselves tempted to fit in, to blend in, to find our approval there or become more and more like the world, we should expect God to answer from heaven and wake us up. And so it's worth asking ourselves that question. What is God doing today to rouse his slumbering people? Where are we tempted to become more conformed to the world rather than be transformed by Christ? Where have we already capitulated and and, and given in, maybe without even realizing it? Here's here's one way to ask it. Where does the idea of God intervening make me nervous? Like if God shows up in this, that's going to mess up my world. I don't think I want that. What might God do from heaven to wake his people up? I mean, perhaps that's part of what he's been doing through this whole coronavirus thing, right? Stripping away from us so many things that we've become so dependent on that we have allowed to get in the way of following God. Things we maybe never even realized how dependent we'd become. Perhaps this is what God is doing through all of the renewed attention to racial justice in our nation right now. Maybe God wants to do something to bring some lasting healing there. Maybe there's something in my life where my world has just been rocked. What is God doing? And 
the question that's worth asking both personally and as a church, what is God trying to teach us in all of this? Is there something that I've been clinging to, that I've been putting my security or my significance or my identity in? Maybe my health or my security, my safety, my convenience, my success, my kids, my family, my retirement. Is there something I'm clinging to that's causing me to open my hand and let go of the Lord? Is there something I've been blind to? Ways that I've become too much like the world or become too comfortable in the world such that the unique hope of Christ, the unique character of Christ, and the unique mission of Christ kind of just slowly get eroded away or crowded out. May we never become so comfortable in this world that when God moves to bring his redemption to bear, we view it as a threat or as a liability. That's going to that's gonna mess up the status quo. May we never view God's salvation as a threat. Rather, may we always be looking for God to do his redeeming work, to bring it to bear what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. May God bring that to bear and may we be expecting him to answer from heaven. May we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that there is nothing that compares to you. Lord, of all that this world might hold out and offer, of all of the promises, all of the dreams, all of the hopes, there's nothing that holds a candle to the beauty and satisfaction and value that we have in Christ alone. Lord, may we taste and see that the Lord is good. May we savor your goodness such that we can't tolerate the cheap imitations around us. And Lord, may we not miss what you are doing to rouse your people. Lord, where we are tempted to become like the world, where we have already become like the world, would you wake us up, Lord? Would you remind us of the beauty of your gospel, of the sufficiency of your grace, of your vision for loving our neighbors, whatever shape it takes, Lord. Wake us up to the beauty of Christ that we might joyfully serve you, shining as lights in the world amid a crooked and depraved generation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.